Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. Thank you for considering to support me in this way. And now to the show. That was that was really hard, actually, because in, in my mind, when that diagnosis came over, paranoid schizophrenia, my life had literally ended. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I am excited today on the line we have Raymond Baxter. Raymond is a mental health activist, a cryptocurrency enthusiast, and founder of The Relationship Blogger. Raymond, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to be here. So, Raymond, I bet people already noticed uh, just from your small greeting there, you've got a slight accent. Can you tell the listeners, uh, where are you from? Uh, yeah, I am. Um, well, I, I'm a bit of a mixed breed, really. I am from um, Scotland, um, but I'm currently living in England. And if you want a bit of my, a, a strange bit of history from me, uh, my dad was a instrument engineer in uh, British nuclear power. And we spent most, well, not most, but a good five years of my younger years, from about one to five or six years old in Russia, behind the actual Iron Curtain. So that was like before the wall fell and things like that. So wow. that's... Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty incredible. So for a, a fairly ignorant uh, American like myself, is your accent more Scottish or more British? More Scottish. It's got an English twang, twang in it now because wherever I go, I pick up um, accents. So I don't tend to keep my accent fully. I tend to mig um, take the others on. So it's, well, I would say, British. But it's more Scottish. Okay, and then that uh, makes sense. in England, would you say people look at you a bit funny noticing that you don't have the British accent? They're probably used to other European accents, I bet. Uh, <laughs> well, and, uh, it's strange. and um, I mean, when I'm in England, there's a, how can I say, there's, there's a profound sense of admiration when um, 
English people approach me and say, oh, you're Scottish. And I get that everywhere I go, really. Everybody seems to love the Scottish. It's really <laughs> nice, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So you're a bit of a, a celebrity there. Oh, no, no, not a celebrity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not a celebrity, but people people really, I, I sort of, whenever I'm, wherever I am, people sort of enjoy the accent yeah. and ask me a lot about Scotland. That's awesome. Where in England do you live? I am lost off Suffolk. So I'm, I mean, this is the back and beyond of um England here. We are um, where the broads are. Sheep country. Okay, all right. My brother, uh, I don't know if any of the listeners know this because I don't know if I've shared it, but my brother actually lives in Brighton. Oh, Brighton. Okay, so that's not that far from here. Brighton is about uh, 50 miles south of here. Okay, yeah, right on the right on the ocean. Uh, I visited him once, and I'm actually going there this summer with my wife and four kids. So uh, four kids, yeah, wow. it should be a crazy time. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. we're really excited to to do that. Haven't brought the family overseas ever. So cryptocurrency. So again, I feel quite ignorant when uh, I had read that you're a cryptocurrency enthusiast. And you made it. I something I read made it sound like you were doing quite well in the cryptocurrency. And uh, could you give a layman's explanation of what cryptocurrency is exactly? Oh, a layman's. I don't think that's like a, a, a simplified, a simplified. <laughs> okay, for, for my sake. Okay. okay. So, have you ever heard of Bitcoin before? Yes, Bitcoin. Definitely heard of. Again, it's kind of a mystery to me. Okay. So what? But, Bitcoin did is it solved the um, double spend um, problem that money has. So you can basically make a copy of a £10 or a $10 note and pass it off as legal tender. You can't actually do that with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. Once you spend one Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin or whatever of a Bitcoin, then it's spent and then it is updated on every single computer in the world that has Bitcoin on it. So they solved the double spend problem and that is basically what Bitcoin was introduced as was on an alternative currency. But obviously governments don't like it because it's not... um, it's not their official form of legal tender, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It Was it something that you can actually use to make purchases of real-life items? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Yes, you can. You can. In certain places, I mean, um, you can't just go down and um, use your card. Uh, well, back about two years ago, you used to have what you could do is you could put your bitcoin on cards load it up and then what you you could actually go to the shop and buy um purchases with it but then visa revoked what visa did is they revoked everything to do with bitcoin i guess it was a bit of a pushback from the banks um but you you can still buy things and you could swap um bitcoin for real money anyway so okay. you could go you, you you could go to the exchange and exchange 
Bitcoin Man. for money. Yeah, it is. It is still all way over my head. <laughs> Which, so I'm lucky and glad to say this is actually a mental health podcast, not a Bitcoin <laughs> cryptocurrency podcast. But that is really interesting. And tell me, what is your family like? Life like? Do you have uh, siblings? No, I'm an only child. Okay, and you said you were growing up uh, in Russia. For the first five years, yes. Um, as far as I understand it, I mean, I can't remember this far back, but as far as I understand it, I moved over to Russia with my mum when I was one years old. And then I moved back when I was five. So around about four and a half, five years in my initial life, I lived over there. Okay. Russia. All right. Yeah. And uh, mental health-wise, would you say... Uh Looking back on it, and I know a lot of men that I interview say looking back on their past, they realized they were dealing with some mental health struggles before they actually ever got a diagnosis in hindsight. Would you say you had mental health struggles as a kid? Yes, very much so. From I'd, what age? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought it like that, actually. Um I well, it was a definite yes, right? What from makes bit, you say absolutely? Absolutely. Um, well, I've got a child myself now, and he's been diagnosed with ASD autism, and I am um, pretty sure that comes from me, and I'm pretty sure that I'm on the spectrum as well, and that comes with. Um, anxiety and depression and I had all of that I could remember growing up with extreme anxiety I mean it was only recently that I realized that people don't go um, through the levels of anxiety as I do and I mean I'm very very susceptible to depression Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually realize that, <laughs> that that what I was going through wasn't normal until um, fairly recently. I mean, the first time I ever remember um, feeling disoriented or out of sorts or not normal, if that makes sense, was I remember I was, a, I must have been about seven or eight and I was lying in my bed and I remember looking at the wall and everything started to spin. And then I, I really freaked out you know I really 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 panicked and I I started to shake uncontrollably and I remember my mum had to sit in my bedroom until I went to sleep and it just got sort of progressively worse from there. Wow did it impact you being able to go to school? Oh it impacted a lot of um Oh, I actually, um, not, no, not actually going into school, no. Okay. Because, yeah, what my mum worked, so I, I by then I was an only child. Uh, sorry, by then I was in a single-parent household. Okay. So my mum worked, so I had to go to school. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And did, did you have friends at school? Were you able to, to do your work in school? Yeah, I was a top achiever in school, actually. Okay. Awesome. Um, until not all the way through though okay i mean we can you can get back you, that's a bit further on in life i talk about that about, about that later <laughs> yeah what about uh you know you mentioned possibly being on the spectrum yourself looking back are there certain 
things from your childhood that you would say, man, yeah, I, I well, like what makes you believe you may be on the spectrum yourself? Well, I, I mean, Alex is definitely on the spectrum. We got him a diagnosis and I look at the things that he does and it's so similar to um, what I went through at school. I mean, one thing that I, I see that he does is he is so organized and if he deviates from that routine and that organization in any form is just you know it sets him completely off balance completely for the next few days and that's the same with me i'm just like that i am so (laughs) i am so much like that and and things as well as like stimming um he stems and i realized actually I don't stim like him, but I stim. What do you and mean I by only... stim? Okay, so stimming is basically a um, way to relieve stress. It's what autistic people tend to do. Like s- some kids will run around in a circle and it, or, or flick their ears or, or make noises or something that's isn't actually normal but they'll do it repeatedly and they'll keep on doing it and what that does is that sort of relieves the stress from them okay gotcha you ever heard of that uh yeah i definitely have seen that in autistic kids i've never heard the term stemming okay that's stemming that's what we use yeah maybe and you you believe you do similar things can you describe in yourself what how that manifests yeah, well, when I was a kid, um, I used to, <laughs> I used to say certain phrases, and I would say them over and over and over and over again until people used to get annoyed with me. <laughs> but I was, I came from a different era, so that sort of high function in autism or anything like that wasn't generally recognised. So I learned to shut up very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do it in other ways. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. can you describe your, you, you mentioned having a, a really high level of anxiety. What was anxiety? How would the anxiety manifest as a kid? Oh, as a kid. Um, okay. So um, just, I had a big issue with conflict like I didn't, I I really, really, any sort of conflict, any arguments or people just looking at me a different way, I used to have a big problem with and I would tend to avoid them at all costs because conflict would really um, set me off balance and it would make me sort of very much retreat to my shell. I just want to go home and hide under my blankets right yeah and then it wasn't until later in your teens right where you actually received a diagnosis okay no it was in my 20s um so in my 20s i was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and what brought you to the level of being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia were you were you delusional at the time, and I, what brought you I, to the doctor? I, okay, so what happened was um, I had a major life event 
um, around about 13. Uh, my mum had been dating this um, man and we'd be, she'd been dating him for years and years and years and he was sort of like a second dad to me and he um, contracted stomach cancer and oh, died no. yeah died within six months there was like no time to say bye or anything he died very quickly the decline was sudden and the death was quick and i just went out oh, pot after that and you know i started drinking at age 13 taking, yeah 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 i started right. taking drugs i um just started doing anything that I shouldn't have been and I started to revert. I stopped going to school. I um they, they couldn't get me to go to school or anything like that. Did your mom realize just how bad you had gotten at that point that you were drinking, doing drugs, skipping school? I think she did, but I don't think she wanted to admit it to herself. Because right. I was I was like a high achiever. I mean, um before all that happened I was set for. I was actually in the Scottish national golf team at the time. Wow, cool! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I started acting out on the practice green, and then I got kicked off. What? Uh, what do you mean when you say acting out on the greens? Well, if you understand golf, it's very, very. Um, you have to really self-moderate on the golf course, and that was normally good for me. Uh, normally. You know, I was a very good kid, but then I, I, when I started acting out, I was doing dangerous things. Like um, I was chip when we were picking up the balls to get ready to go home. I was I was chipping the balls over to the other kids <laughs> and getting them in. You know, getting them. Um, so they would hold open a bag, and they would try and catch it like a circus thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, and you know, I was just like really, really acting out. And normally, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been well behaved. I would have been on top behavior because this is like the practice for the Scottish national golf team, you know. Right. Right. So yeah, I just I got kicked off that. A pretty serious level of golf, I hear you saying. Very serious. I mean, yeah. you had to be pretty straight down the line all the way. There, should, there was no tomfoolery or anything. And, and were mean, you if, drinking and doing drugs, like during practice? I mean, before practice and so forth. No. Okay. No, I wasn't doing that. No, okay. I was. I was pretty much around at the same time. Though I was still drinking and doing drugs. Yeah. And what kind of drugs were you doing at age thirteen? Um, I was doing marijuana. Okay. And speed. Okay. Easy to get your hands on at that time at, at age 13? Oh, very easy. I was I was brought up in a very, very rough area. And we all knew who the drug dealers were, so we could just go up to their door and ask for whatever we wanted to. Right. And do you still remember, like, the first time you actually bought drugs? I do, yeah. <laughs> and do you remember that experience? And was it like a, a rush of excitement? Or what was it feeling like the first time you went at age 13 to, to buy some marijuana? It was a rush of excitement. I would say scary, but the scary was rooted in excitement. Right. Or the excitement was rooted in the scary. I mean, I think I've never thought of this before, but I think now you say that. That's probably why I did it. 
Yeah. Excitement, yeah. And what, uh, you got any great uh, Scottish slang or British slang for marijuana for us? No, it's just the same. <laughs> um, cannabis, uh, what's the stuff? We... No, yeah, soap okay. bar. All right. Uh, sticky black. And... <laughs> it sounds good, sounds good. <laughs> so you're So you're 13 years old, just dealing with this man who essentially was like your father, Dying suddenly, you're, you're dipping into drugs, alcohol, skipping school, getting kicked off of this uh, prestigious golf team. Take us to the next. What, what happens after that? Well, after that, I, I get into a really bad crowd. So I start hanging with, because I'm obviously into drugs and I'm into drinking, I start getting in with a crowd that, um, aren't uh, I don't know what to call them because they were just like me, you know. I can't I can't say oh yeah they were unsavories, but I understand they were sort of like me, just we were teens. Yeah, but but, but a crowd yeah. that was more into the drugs and the alcohol. So yes, I'm guessing, yes, right? and yes, and um, we used to hang around on the shop corner and scare old ladies that were coming past you know right. <laughs> you know what i mean and that that went on for quite a few years until actually um mum what happened was my mum um phoned up my dad and says look this this actually can't go on um he can't keep doing this because he's going to end up in prison or he's going to end up dead so what my dad did is he came my dad now is down england and he came up to Scotland. Had you been in touch did, with him previously? Yes, he, well, about once a year. And that was it. Not not even communicating yeah. by phone or anything. Oh yeah, communicating by phone, but okay. not much because he was a very, very, very busy man at the time. Right. I mean, he could have done better, but yeah. that was all that I had at the time. Right. And he came up, and what he did was he. He stood by, I remember this actually, he sat by the phone and any one of my friends from that crowd who phoned, he would pick up the phone and say, no, he's not coming out, F off, <laughs> right? He's, and don't call this place again or you'll have me to deal with. Wow. Uh, and they never called again. And actually what he did after that is he took me down England with him. And then whilst I was down England, my mother moved house away from that area uh that was the end of that so i might but there's more to come <laughs> but so that that essentially got you out of that uh, crowd that was doing the drugs and doing the the weed and then were so then you started living with your dad yeah for 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 a about three or four months uh -huh. and were you clean then yes not from drink, not from drink, because my dad, um, I, my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver, so he was an alcoholic himself. So although I got clean from the drugs, and I haven't really had any drugs since then, um, he let me drink. Okay, and so you'd be drinking with your dad? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I'd be going to the pub with my dad, and um. 
for those of you listening, a pub is like a bar. It's like a drinking yeah. establishment where you you go and you socialise and you get. But over here, over in Britain, we tend to go to the pub to get very drunk. Yeah, right. We don't go for a casual drink. Right. My brother has shared that with me as well. So uh, tell us, uh, so you you move in with your dad and start going to a different school and hanging with a different crowd? No, this is quite a few years on now. By now, I've, I've went tried college and failed. Okay. And then I go down to my dad. And then my dad sends me back up to my mum three months later, and I try college again and pass. And then my dad then says, look, we have because my by this time my dad's not working in nuclear power anymore and he has his own business so he says to my mum look he could come down again because i have a job for him so maybe me i think yeah let's go down and earn some money and i went down with my dad and that job lasted four months and then i was stuck and, and at that <laughs> point was... you're you're like how old at this point 20 Oh, um, I am 19. Okay. Yeah. So I'm stuck there now because I'm out of a job. I'm living in a strange house. Um, and I need money, obviously. So I get myself. So uh, pretty much for the next three, two, three years, it works out good. I make friends. And you were living on your own or with your dad still? Oh, I was um, house sharing. Okay. Yeah, I was house sharing. Um and then the, the the next major life... Now, all through this, right, all through this, I understand that I was drinking heavily because of the anxiety and depression. I haven't mentioned this on this podcast yet, but the, my anxiety was at such a high level, I found it hard to make connection with women. Okay. So I find that my anxiety is really hindering my um, communication. Like, you know when, um, I I don't know what it's like like for regular guys, but for me at that time, um, approaching a woman and talking to her is very, 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 very stressful. So, um, and to... I mean, I'm 19, right? I'm wanting to meet women and I want to get social and stuff. Right. And I, to do this, I drank to get the anxiety and the depression away because I was basically self-medicating, if that makes sense. Right. You also, like, sorry to interrupt you, but you hadn't yeah. really mentioned depression until now either. And were you dealing with a lot of depression at this point? And just how significant was that on you? No, not really, not um, not really significant. I can't actually recognize the depression um, until afterwards, but I think the depression was hidden. Yeah, well, so I many think, times. I think you... it was manifesting in different ways. I can't. I've not gotten to the root of that yet. I'm not too sure. Yeah, well, and depression and anxiety so many times go hand in hand, right? And sometimes you can't even really tell which is which. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. right. I, I absolutely agree with that. So you, uh, so you're drinking a lot, trying to meet women. Mm-hmm. And I get a week off work. 
Okay, so I've got a job at this time, not with my dad. I'm down where I am in England and I get a week off work. And me being me, because obviously I'm drinking quite heavily now. I've been drinking since I was 13 and I decide to go on an absolute bender. So what I do is um, I drink absolutely non-stop from the Friday night of my day off work to the Wednesday. Now, I don't stop drinking. I just... To the following Wednesday? Yeah, pretty much. It's just, wow. Uh, I know. I was crazy about that. And, and, that <laughs> and essentially, you're staying awake that whole time? Or no, I still, I still went to sleep. Okay. I still went to sleep. But then you're up but, and, and drinking again, essentially. Yeah, I get up and then go straight to the vodkas and yeah. orange. And essentially, uh, what happened was, as I thought, by that Wednesday, I thought, okay, I've got work on the Monday. And this is now Wednesday. I will stop right now and by Monday, I'll probably be feeling better. And obviously, I went through the delirium theorems, or whatever you call it, the DTs, and I hallucinated, shaken, and they pulled me. <laughs> I hallucinated so badly that I, I actually ended up in someone's house running away from imaginary people. Wow. So uh, this was essentially from withdrawal of, of stopping the booze? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. There was wow. no 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 drugs, no drugs whatsoever. Right. But but definitely uh, hallucinating. Yeah, oh, very very much. Yeah. And what happened is the police took me in. So the oh, the the guy's house that I was in, he called the police, and the police took me in at the police station. It, it was a stranger's they, house. Yeah. It, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Stranger's house. And you're I'll, in there, I'll, kind of just like screaming, <laughs> running from people, and they decide to call the cops and get, you, get you out of their house. Wow. So, so what? What? So what had happened? So what had happened? Right, as I was trying to um, run in his front door and get out his back door. Okay. Right. And I'd already done this with two houses previously. What? I already done. I'd already run in someone's front door and run, run out the back door. And this guy, I ran in his front door, and his back door was locked. And I was stuck in his lounge. And then he came running. He was upstairs, and he was probably freaking out. He was, yeah. I feel bad for him, actually. I remember this, and I remember him and how freaked out he was. And anyway, so he called the police. I mean, I, I wasn't, I'm not a violent person, never have been, so. Was he yelling he, at you? And, I mean, I can't imagine what was going through his mind. More concerned, more scared. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a six-foot-tall guy. Yeah. Um, back then, I, I was well-built. So it would have been quite threatening for him, I guess. Yeah, even, right. Even although, you know, I'm a very friendly guy, I always have been. Um, well, you were probably, I'm guessing, in a very scared place yourself. You said you were running from what you believed I was were petrified. people chasing you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they had guns and everything. They were going to put a billet in my head. That's yeah, so what I was thinking. Yeah. Oh, my God. So as friendly of a guy as you are, you're you're going through this pretty much a psychosis, it sounds like, and, and delusions. I was like, yeah. Yeah. So the police so, come. <laughs> so the police come and take me into um, 
the police station. And what they do is, obviously, they assess me and ask me questions. And I was very cooperative because, to me, the police were safe. I was now in the police station. I wasn't scared for my life anymore. Right. So, yeah, I'm in the police station and they they ask me questions and obviously do assessments and then realize that I need to be in a psychiatric hospital. So then they send me into a psychiatric hospital and I'm there for about two weeks. Wow. Now, yeah, I I don't know. um, I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, but all healthcare over here is free. Right. So, um, you know, if we are, if people are, emitting signs of that even homeless people i guess they're emitting signs of psychosis they'll just pick you up and put you in a psychiatric hospital and get you better so i was in there for two weeks and it took me about three days to come around but i think from what i remember everyone was really really worried <laughs> so everybody yeah. was really really worried because yeah. i was through um I was pretty much going through psychosis and I had the delirium theorems. And from what I've from what I understand it is uh, I've done a lot of research is if you stop drinking alcohol suddenly like that from a long period of being on alcohol, it could kill you. Right. Wow. So tell us about two weeks in the psychiatric hospital where you and and it took you a few days to come down. So what was that like? Were you did you understand what was going on with yourself and were you shocked that you were even in this situation? Well, it was it was um strange and shocking at first because now we're we're talking about this is way back in um 2001. Now did, back did in you th- just say way back in 2001? <laughs> well, you are only 39, right? So, I am, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. all right. That's not all that long ago, really. <laughs> back in the day when they would do lobotomies. <laughs> okay, no, so, no. so way back so then a, in 2001. Yeah, when uh, mental health understanding was really low. Yeah, I true. mean, it's a lot better now. But I pretty much thought I was going, in, uh, going to be chained in chains and put in pretty much what was like a prison and it was quite surprising when I came around to realize what I was in but for that three days of psychosis they were trying to give me um, medication they tried to give me um, diazepam they tried to give me tamazepam they tried to give me lots of things but I just wouldn't take it because I'd seen too many films that suggested that they were just trying to get me dosed out of my face so and you were probably still uh, in a state of paranoia i would imagine while they were trying to get you out of that psychosis with medications i was yes yeah. i was very much in a state of paranoia yeah. i still thought i was going to die i was out of the police station so i thought um people were waiting at my window to get to kill me it was really quite so you refused true. all the medicines mm, i did i wouldn't take it uh-huh. absolutely not because I thought it was just to get me drugged up, which it essentially was, but it would help help that paranoia ease, and it would would have you know helped me a lot to come out of that psychosis. Right. Probably but, um, wouldn't it probably wouldn't have taken you the, the three days that it took had they been able to get some medicine in you. 
Yeah, that's right. I, d- I don't know what the laws are like in um, America, but or even what they're like now, but back then, I had the right not to take the pills if I didn't want to. Right. So they, they, they could... They could try and give me them, but they couldn't force it on me. So tell us, uh, after three days, you finally come down. You realize you're in a, a psychiatric hospital, I would imagine. And then are they, did they give you a diagnosis right away? Are you meeting with psychiatrists, psychologists? What's it like in the hospital? Well, actually, I found my experience there really, really good. I mean, when I came down... And actually started mingling with the residents. Took took didn't take me long once I came down because for the first three days people generally stayed away from me. I was pretty much I was hard to talk to for the first three days. But when I came down and made friends and started talking to people, I actually found my experience really good. I found out found out I was respected and. Uh, it was a good experience, I must admit. That's and awesome. That's great to hear. Um, were I was I was really surprised actually. My my view of psychiatric hospitals were completely changed. Yeah. Completely changed. Well, that's awesome. What were the days like? Were there classes? Where was it a therapeutic setting, or was it just about stabilizing you? I think this this one. Because I've been in psychiatric hospital three times now, I think this one was just about stabilizing me, um, feeding me up, and getting me out. <laughs> okay, right, right. Yeah. Did you have some therapy while you were there? Uh, none. Okay. No, I was just. I would say it was quite therapeutic to to mingle with everyone, though. Right, and then you received your first ever diagnosis while you were there, correct? No. Oh, okay. Did they not. didn't diagnose you at all. No, no. They they said that it was probably due to the heavy alcohol. Gotcha. Because gotcha. yeah, they they blood tested me and they said there was no, there was no there was no drugs in my blood. It was just alcohol. So mm-hmm. um, they just said it was to do with the alcohol. And as long as I don't do that again, um, I shouldn't have any other problems. But I did it again. <laughs> well, and that's really interesting to me. You spend two weeks, right, in a psychiatric hospital. And, and you know, I'm no doctor or anything like that. But it seems like two weeks there and you had just been through a psychotic experience that they would want or feel obligated to give you some type of diagnosis. But I guess, like you said, they just strictly attributed it to the the drinking. Pretty much, yeah. that's what that's what they said. Which is strange, actually, because I don't know why they did that, really. Because I don't know. Yeah, I it's really interesting, especially that they even kept you there for two weeks, right? I mean, the booze was through your system after you finally came down three days later, and they decided to keep you still. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. That's that's weird. I'll never understand that one. <laughs> I've never, I've actually never thought of that like that. But now that I think of it, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us when you when you finally get out of there, are you are you nervous to walk out the doors after kind of being in this safe haven for two weeks? Pretty much, my life changed after that. My life changed beyond all recognition. That was that. That was the old me. Really, uh, I was th- going to go through a lot of hell after that. Um, 
Did you go I back could, to the booze right away? Uh, it took me about a week, maybe, and then I went back to the booze. I I was I wasn't physically addicted to alcohol, but I was definitely by then psychologically addicted to alcohol. Right, right. And I couldn't. I was really hard after that. Like when I went home, I struggled to be alone. So I had. I had a lot of empowering friends around me. So they, what they did is they would say, right, okay, you could come and sleep at my house and things like that. But I very much struggled to be alone after that because by then I was living in a flat on my own. And after that, I couldn't be alone. I struggled to be alone at any time. I and don't know. What, what do you mean you struggled to be alone? Where you, you it would frighten you, or your anxiety would skyrocket? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Um, my anxiety would skyrocket. I'd feel, yeah, it wasn't depression. It was mainly anxiety. I think, uh-huh. yeah, I was very anxious about being back in that flat and being alone. I didn't like it. Right. And were you able to get sleep, or did the anxiety prevent you from sleeping? No, I slept. Okay. Um, Oh, actually, thinking about it, I was never really a good sleeper, and that was one of the reasons why I continued drinking as well, was because I was never a good sleeper. Right, right. (laughs) I forgot to mention that part. Yeah. Yeah. Which really, they say, yeah, it might knock you out, but it's really not a solid night of sleep. No, that's right. That's so right, actually. Yeah. I've never really had a, a, the most, I mean, since I've been sober now for about 12 years. Hey, congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> thank you. And since all those years of sobriety, I've had night sleep that have been amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Amazing. And you just don't get that wild call. Anyway, sorry, back to the story. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, that's good to hear, though. But, yeah, so take us back. So you you made it sound like it was just pretty much hellish after walking out of that hospital, and you've talked right. about anxiety when you were alone. What else was going on? Um, fear. The fear. Uh, when, I, when I got out of hospital, it was okay. I was happy to get back out of hospital. I did probably the worst thing that I did, could have ever did, and that is I went straight back to work. Okay. Yeah, and that didn't sit well. Did you tell people uh, at work what was going on with you and why you were gone? Did they know? They, they did, yes. They did. They and, were all very supportive as well. Okay, awesome. Were, were you worried about going back to work, and were you worried that, well, I guess at that point it wasn't even a, I mean, you were in a psychiatric hospital, but as far uh-huh. as you know, knew at the time at least it was just booze. I was very worried, very, very worried, because I had, um, I was... I was working at a very public-facing job at the time. Okay. And I wouldn't say I was popular, but I would say a lot of people in the town knew me. Okay. And it was quite central as to what I was working in. So, um, what kind I of was job like, was it? Um, uh, I don't know what you have in America, but... What it is, is like some people who are unemployed go there for their benefits and their money. Okay, yep. And to get offered other jobs. Right. And I worked there, I, I helped people get jobs. 
So and, and then, uh, so as far as your coworkers and your boss knew, did they know you were out on a five or six day bender before going to the hospital? I swear, I swore to them blind that it was. I thought someone had spiked my drink, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think they knew. I honestly, I, I told them a whole bunch of load of lies, <laughs> okay. but I think, I think they knew. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I can't. Well, you imagine. said it yourself. The people in England go to the pub to drink <laughs> and get drunk, not to have a social drink, right? So that's, uh, right, that's right. Social drinking is nothing here. It's right. not really a thing. <laughs> so you get back to work and and you're nervous that everybody's going to realize what's going on, and you're telling a bundle full of lies. Yep. Pretty much. And were you able to get to function at work and do all right working? I was at first, but then um, then it started to get difficult because I started to have um, memories, real, real bad memories. Now, I've since then um, realized that these weren't actual memories, but... Um, these were part of the psychosis, but it was very hard to function. So um, was it, I mean, it was, it was a part of a psychosis that, but at the time you were believing these were memories of your past? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And can you describe those memories? Okay, um, do you have a lot of UK listeners? Uh, we have some, some, yes. Okay, that's probably... It's not too deep. It's just I um, probably shouldn't say what I'm going to say. <laughs> but well, you don't. Probably, hey, I don't want you to say anything that's going to get you in trouble or something you don't want to say. Yeah, it's probably going to be a bit. Uh, I don't know. Okay, go. Cool, let's go for it. Um, yeah, I believe believe that I was gang raped. Okay. So that really, I was. Well, I wasn't, of course, because we. I went to the doctors. I got tests. And um, so you believed they, you had been raped, and you went for testing to make sure that it actually didn't hadn't happened. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, wow. And and then then when I got when when basically all my tests came through all clear, and then when the doctor said, you know, you would have known, and and he explained to me all what would have happened, then my sort of train of thoughts went along. Um, I actually. The people that did this paid the doctors to say these things to you. <laughs> okay. so, so you could see that the level of paranoia was quite high here. Oh my God, really, really uh, high. Uh, yeah, mega high. So, And then obviously after that, I went back into the hospital again. So, so this is a very high level of paranoia, but also very delusional, right? I mean, yeah, these were much. things that never really happened, but you truly believed they did so did. much for so, so much that you believed it, that you went to the doctor to have an examination and make sure. I did. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And then, so you went from having an examination and then now you just mentioned you went, to the hospital did they bring you to the hospital because of that appointment no i voluntarily um went to the hospital essentially and, right after realizing like wow this never actually happened to me this is all no i didn't realize that it never happened to me that those those delusional thoughts never stopped um okay 
until a long time after. Wow. Pretty much, yeah, until a long time after. So what was it that finally that made you decide, I'm going to go and check myself into the hospital again? Well, I just had another heavy night of drinking, and I remember sitting there awake in my bed thinking, uh, I, I can't go on like this anymore. I, I need to need to get help. Mostly <laughs> because my, of the drinking or because of these delusional thoughts? or Everything, everything. I went from being a, just a happy-go-lucky guy with a decent life, with friends, yeah. with, you know, and I, with friends and... Now that had all gone, so I thought, right, I'm going to check myself in. Right. So I did. Oh, I forgot to mention, by then as well, to top that all off, by then, because of these delusional thoughts, I at first tried running away. So what I did was I took myself back up to Scotland with my mum because I thought I could run away from it all. That was my first step. And I went out for a heavy night of drinking, and I, I got back to the house and realized that I'd lost all my friends. I had no one. I just, it was just like me and my mum. So, uh, you know, I just didn't have anything. So I, I took myself to psychiatric hospital. I took, made myself an appointment at the doctor's and says, look, I can't go on with this anymore. And checked myself into psychiatric hospital. Wow. And was, so was this an inpatient program you went into? Um, as what they caught, yeah, it was an impatient. So you thing. stayed they, overnight. No, um, I tried only staying for a couple of days, but what they did is kept me in for six months. Wow, <laughs> this stay was yeah. six months, day and night. Yeah, it was six months. Yeah, straight. yeah, they kept me in for a long time. Uh, by three months, uh, sorry, by three days, I was ready to go back home because obviously the alcohol had worn off. I was. I was starting to feel a bit better. And you were uh, thinking you were going to go home three days later? Yeah, and they were like, eh, eh you ain't going home, mate. <laughs> wow. So eh. um, I, I got sectioned. So basically, under the Mental Health Act, I wasn't legally allowed to leave the hospital. Right. So, wow. So six months there, and I'm guessing that you did finally get a diagnosis at oh. this day? Yeah, I did. I did. And do and, you remember meeting with a doctor and getting that diagnosis? Yes, I did. Tell us about and that. That was that was really hard actually because I then had he then put a name to it, so then I had to deal with it. And in my mind, when that diagnosis came over, which was my paranoid schizophrenia. Okay, my life had literally ended because I didn't realize at the time that nothing had changed you know right. nothing had changed but by having that diagnosis it forced me forced the issue to the forefront and I couldn't keep running away from it anymore right um so and then did they start you on a series of medications yes they started me I've actually been on the same medication ever since. So, okay. Yeah. How many started... different medications did they put you on immediately? In hospital or in hospital? Oh, also oh, they tried so many medications on me. I could have rattled at one point. Wow. <laughs> I remember. I remember the the lady pulling the the lady that did the pill dispensary. She pulled up my list, and it was nearly a sheet full long. <laughs> wow. 
and and they were trying different ones or were you on many different medications all at the same time uh they were trying different ones sometimes i was on many different medications all at the same time sometimes i was only on one sometimes i was only on a few um the the real one that the real medication that did a change for me was the olanzapine i think you called that um oh i don't know actually um yeah. well that's all right um <laughs> i wonder if is that a part of the reason, do you think, that they kept you for six full months because they were really trying to figure out what medication, what combination of meds would be best for you? I the, They kept me in for six months, I think. It was because um, I had so many things to work through. Yeah. I had, yeah, I had a lot of issues. And how old so were you on, at this point? Uh, 21. 21. 22, so it's 22, sorry. Okay. 22, 22, and did your parents, they both knew you were in there? Yeah. Okay. I was hard for them, I think. Oh, I'm sure. Not not so much my dad, but it was hard for mum. She yeah. didn't know what to do. Right. And how did they react when you told them paranoia schizophrenia is what you were diagnosed with? I can't really remember. Okay. I, think, I, think, I think my mum didn't really want to deal with it, really. Yeah. It's got to be a lot on parents hearing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when our, when our, um, you know, young, bright boy, yeah, who's who had all the opportunity in the world, just flushes it entirely down the toilet. <laughs> well, come on now, it's a mental illness, right? It was. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just thinking. I'm. I'm trying to say how she must have felt yeah, at the time. So. I get it. I get it. And yeah. and uh, paranoid schizophrenia doesn't mean you go on uh, six-day benders necessarily either. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so six months there. Oh, my goodness. That's like, that must have felt like an eternity to you. It did. And was I, this also a good experience for you? Or, and was no, it that was a bad experience. Really bad experience. I didn't get on with any of the residents. I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible <laughs> what made it so bad i just the people i didn't seem gel well with the people there okay i was at yeah i uh, didn't how about the therapist the doctors who were trying to help you they were nice yeah they were nice but they you you they're not like there all the time it's the people that are there all the time and they sort of yeah. Create the experience. So if you don't get on well with them, it's not that great. So you had did you have your own room and were there kind of classes that you would attend or are you just staying uh, in your room the whole time? It was it was various. So um initially I was in a bay which was shared with six other people. Okay. And then so it, it would depend. So if I got worse, I would get put in my own room. If I got better, I'd go back out in the bays. So you were kind of hills and valleys about your mental health. Sometimes oh, days what? were good, days were bad. I was, yeah. I more, was, more delusions, uh, even. No, I wouldn't say so much. Yeah, well, actually, yes, yes, delusions. Okay. I did have, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Wow, what's your uh, what's your biggest memory from that six month stay? Anything stand out? That six months. Oh, uh, so many few. I'm, I'm trying to pick one <laughs> just um i guess 
it's sort of irrelevant, but I guess that um, my biggest takeaway was how um, how off the wall it could be sometimes. Now, I remember um, walking down the corridor just to go to the, because I was a smoker at the time, and I was just going to the smoker's room, and one of the unwell girls um, was in the, she was quite unwell actually, and she was in the, side base that's where she gets a room her own and I was just walking down there and I remember she walked out stark naked and sort of tries to give him a hug and I'm like you know backing up like oh my god what's this (laughs) and then the person who obviously the person who was with her at the time he grabbed her and pulled her back in right (laughs) wow lots of memories like that yeah (laughs) wow and so when you were admitted and i know you said you were thinking okay the booze is out of me i'm gonna be out of here do they originally tell you from the get-go you're gonna be there for six months or each month or each week are you expecting okay maybe next day maybe tomorrow i'll get out maybe next week i'll get out um or did you know it was gonna be a full six months I didn't know, so I was okay. always hoping. I was always hoping, like, oh god, I'd so hope to get out of this. <laughs> it's almost like a prison sentence, you know. Yeah. As, uh, and was it one person who would always tell you, "Nope, you know what? You're gonna stay another month or so." Yeah, it was a consultant. So what he would do is he would he would so the as far as I understood it, the nurses and the nursing assistants would all work with you and then the big consultant guy would see you every week or every month and when he came to see you, he'd say, I think you need another month or so. And if you're if you're like if you're like, Oh, I ain't taking that, I'm not having another month, he'd say, Okay, well then we're going to section you under the uh, and so on and so right, forth. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So wow. You could either do it, you could either do it calmly or you can do it unrestfully. <laughs> right. So 22 years old, 6 months in an inpatient psychiatric care and yep. a new diagnosis of schizof- of paranoid schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And then what's it like when you finally get out of there? Oh man. Well, I'll tell you what I did do. I, it stopped me from being scared of the outside. I was so pleased to get out. It was like a different world. From going from being in that that um, box, essentially. That's right. what it was like. It was like a box. And, I mean, they allowed my home and stuff. So, you know, you, you could some... Gradually, when you're getting close to release, what they would do is they would send you home for a week. Okay. And then you would go, you, you would like, what you would do is you'd go back in the psychiatric hospital for about two or three days and then you'd go home for another week and they'd keep on doing that until they would release you. And I remember when I was finally released, it was like freedom. Right. <laughs> it's like, wow, yes. Back into the 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 free-flown world yeah well it makes sense i mean like you said you kind of described this six months as kind of like a jail term 
I was. It was pretty much like that. It was horrible. Do you I think only it, went in for three days. Yeah, right. <laughs> Do you think in the end, though, looking back on it, was it, I know it was a miserable experience, but they gave you a diagnosis, they got you on medications, they got you stabilized. Do you think in the end that if for the most part it was a good thing for you that you needed? They saved my life, essentially. Okay. If, they hadn't, if they hadn't done that, right. I would probably be dead by now. So they okay. saved my life. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great that you can acknowledge that, even though you mm. despise the experience. <laughs> oh, I hated that. Yeah. I was, well, change is never easy. Right. So, um, so yeah. they changed me on a neurological level. They really did yeah. a lot of work that I recognized they did on me. For instance, when I first went into a psychiatric hospital, I... I couldn't sleep. I really struggled with sleep, and that's part a big part of the reason why I drank. But when I came out of a psychiatric hospital, I had no problem sleeping whatsoever. I could sleep standing up after that. Oh, so. that's great! And sleep is so, they, so important. Yeah. So, so they did. They did a lot of little changes to me on a basic level that helped me manage my life a lot better. Right. So. Right. Cool. So you get out of there after six months, and like you said, it was like freedom. And oh, was, then, yeah. then did you go right back to the same job, same living situation, same same friends? No, I stayed. I stayed with my mum for um, one or two years after that. Um, my friends were still down in England, okay. and I had no job. I, I stayed off work now for about oh, it was about two years. And were you I going went on to this, a therapist? Uh, yes, I was going to therapy. I was going to uh, see. Uh, I had all sorts of community involvement and people coming to see me. Okay, so, so a lot of support for your mental health at that point. Yeah, but the the only problem was is by the around about then I didn't want to accept it. Okay, right. So, so I, although there was a lot of support, I didn't. I was pretty much wasted really because i didn't i was like i said me i don't need any help i'm all right you know were you a bit in denial of your diagnosis yes very much so okay very 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 much in denial and and Uh, how would you kind of how would you uh reconcile it would you just essentially write it off as those were delusions from drinking and i'm i'm gonna be better now and but you did maintain the medications also? I didn't maintain the medications. And I said to myself that um, this was just a whole big conspiracy. Wow. Okay. So a lot of the paranoia stuff still. Yeah. There's a lot, there was a lot of paranoia. A lot of paranoia. Wow. So, mm. so you're living with your mom. You're, and are you actually denying services then and not getting the help that you needed? No, I had to take them. Okay. The things were, yeah, they had to. I had to take some of them. So right. I sort of resented them being in my life. Gotcha, gotcha. And you said uh, you stayed off of work for a couple of years. You were still drinking at this point. Yes. Okay. Yes. Probably not the best thing to be on the medications and be drinking. And would you have to have the meds changed with the? With the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia, would you stay on the same medications or would they be checking your moods and your, you know, whether or not you were 
delusional maybe or hallucinating and were there lots of changes with the medications um no no because um at that time later on yes but at that time i wasn't taking them so whenever i went to anyone that dealt with the medication i would just spin them a line okay and say oh yeah 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 fine yeah 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 and then they would send me off and wow yeah okay and pretend i was taking it and i wasn't really and how were you how was your mental health then uh, very, very, very depressed because okay. I, uh, I feel I felt sort of bereaved because I had lost a job, my friends, the community that I was in beforehand, and I moved back home with my mum, where essentially all my friends that I grew up with had moved on. Mm. So you know they had either moved country or moved town, or I just I didn't have anyone. <laughs> Right. On, on there. my days were sat sitting there watching the TV and that's not me because I was a very busy boy back then you know I wanted to do stuff so but you'd essentially be in watching TV were you getting out of bed and showering every day no okay that was that was a big issue with me back then I really struggled with personal hygiene but not because not because of anything else it was just because of laziness and I didn't just didn't want to do anything didn't want to look after myself yeah I mean you may call it laziness and you might be right right I can't tell you that you're wrong but that is definitely a challenge for some people with depression some people are unable to get out of bed some people just can't get themselves in the shower and some people really struggle through depression with their personal hygiene as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I understand that. Yeah, I, I struggled with that myself. So this was honest, like yeah. two years of your life living like this. Uh, three or four, I'd wow, say. Wow. Okay. Three or four. Uh-huh. Three or four. Um, it all changed. Um, when I started recognizing that I did have an illness and there was, I, I'd been unemployed for about four years now. And what I had done is my friends had said to me, come down England, you know, we'll sort you out with a house. We'll, we know a landlord who will take you and come be with us. Cause I had a real good supportive friendship network down there so i decided to go back down to england and they knew everything about you and your situation oh pretty much yeah okay yeah they did they knew everything they even came to visit me in psychiatric hospital when i was there so awesome were you nervous making this move going going back with your friends no i was excited okay i mean yeah these I had more of a network down there than I had up in Scotland, so I was really excited about this. And I went down, and they got me a house with a landlord that they knew, and I sat on disability for about a year, and then I got myself a job, and then I noticed that... I got myself a job. I was waitering. Okay. Um, I got myself a job waiter, and and I I, I loved that job. I really, really loved that job because I made so many f- friends and in the catering trade, especially in the hotelier trade, you you meet um, 
a lot of people from a lot of different countries and I, I love that I love just mingling with different cultures and we, and at our hotel we had people from the Philippines we had people from French Canada, we had people from Africa, we had people from the States we had people from India you know we, we had people from all over and it was great, I loved that time of my life, that so, was very So did this essentially kind of pull you out of your depression? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, just but, because you were with a core of friends who were supportive, you had a job, you had a kind of a, a sense of purpose, I would imagine, that yeah. you didn't have for the previous four years. Pretty much, yeah. yes, pretty much. And then I I noticed I, what happened was I left that job to go for another job, and that job was very unsupportive, and I started slipping back into my depressive state again. Different kind uh, of job completely? Oh, it was the same sort of job essentially, but the staff weren't as friendly. And okay. It was, it was a place where, you know, they were all sniping at each other and well, it was all... <laughs> and then you probably started beating yourself up for leaving the other job. Yeah, oh yes, I did that very much. I was yeah. like, God, am I, why did I ever leave that job? Anyway... So um, I eventually left that job and I was back again unemployed and I went to see the unemployment officer um, at the job centre. I used to previously work there and I knew the girl and she says, look, come over here, Raymond. And she says, look, if you go and talk to your doctor and tell your doctor to put you on sick again, I could send you to this place and you know if you work for them they'll give you counselling and they'll they'll do all sorts for you so I decided to do that I went to my doctor, he agreed to put me on the sick if I went to that place so I did and that's when my life changed beyond all recognition for the better very much awesome. for the better yeah. what kind of job was this then? okay so it was, I was basically uh, working in a computer area. Um, I was serving the public and designing materials. So it was like, they called it business administration. But what was, it was like customer facing. It was helping with photocopies. It was uh, designing business cards and so on. Okay. Kind of get it, yeah. And in return for doing that, because I was a volunteer, so in return for volunteering my services, they would help me through my mental health. So they did things like they advised me to go to the doctors and get counselling. They advised me. They advised me to do a whole lot of stuff, and which helped me a lot with my life. And in fact, that's where I met my wife. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool. So yeah. And how long were you with them? Four years. I ended up being staff there, actually. So I ended up with a paid job there. But that's, they said that I couldn't, um, I couldn't go there if I was under the influence at all, even at home okay. when I'm not there. So I had to, for them, I had to stop drinking. So I did. Right. So you stopped drinking. You were in a job that you loved. They were very supportive of your mental very, illness that you had now come to terms with, right? Yeah. And for the first time ever, 
I felt part of something. Yeah, awesome. So they, 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 they really filled a few holes in for me that I never, ever had in my life. Um, for instance, I felt like part of their family. I never, ever had that. That's really cool. That was a, that was a real sense of belonging. They, they filled a lot of holes that just had never been filled for me ever. So. And you were able to manage the schizophrenia at that point then? Yes. Yes, I actually, um, a couple of years later, um, two doctors that I had um, were in conflict with each other over my diagnosis. And they both come to uh, agreement that it was the thing that I had was substance abuse. Uh, what was it called again? So it was something related to substance abuse. And if I don't drink or take drugs again, then I should be okay. So I don't have anything now. So, so, so essentially they wiped away the, the schizophrenia diagnosis. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. It's been an ongoing feud since um, at one 2001. Point, yeah, at one point, were you not diagnosed with bipolar and or bipolar, or I'm sorry, uh, schizoaffective disorder? Yes, um, that was around about 2009, something like that. I was diagnosed with bipolar schizoaffective disorder. I was never diagnosed with bipolar. Okay. Di- diagnosed with bipolar schizoaffective disorder. Yeah. And then um, I had two doctors who were really quite um, in disagreement with each other. And then they eventually came to an agreement that it was substance abuse and that if I didn't take anything ever again, um, I should be okay. Wow. And, and that was accurate you would say to this point i'm not too sure actually i still take my misopride and my antidepressants and to be honest whenever i don't take that i start to feel weird so i'm not not too sure yeah so you think oh my goodness wow what a spot to be in so can you have you thought about going to yet another doctor to to really I, and I guess I don't know. Do you feel like it's important to have a an accurate diagnosis, or is it more important just to be treated so that your symptoms don't come back? Um, it's more important to be treated so that my symptoms come back. I've not touched wood. I've not had any problems in many many years now. So no delusions, no hallucinations, no paranoia, nothing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, so you're unable really to say if that is because of the medication you're on or if it's because you've stopped drinking or both. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't, um, I, I couldn't tell you actually. You're right. I've never thought of that before, but I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, and it doesn't really matter. Right. I think. No. Um, and like you said, it sounds like maybe you tried to wean off the meds and you'd notice that's not a good idea. Uh, I would hope, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, but I would think you wouldn't want to just, stop your meds cold turkey because you would probably want to let a psychiatrist know that you're you're thinking about getting off and they would maybe help you wean off but seems like you already know that they are helping you and you know that not drinking has clearly helped you 
Well, the um, the medication, they've tried weaning me off the medication so many times, but every okay. time they do, I'm, I'm like, this isn't working. I need to go back. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> what kind of sensations, what kind of sensations do you have that you realize you don't want to wean off? Um, I start to feel anxiety. I'd say, I'd say anxious. Okay. I'd say that is, I start to feel very tight inside. Yeah. It's very much so the anxiousness that comes back. Right. Um, I've went off my pills once before. Um, recently and what I could only describe it as a slow descent from the knot in the stomach to depression okay right so I really did and I only noticed that because it's hard with depression you don't actually know that you're depressed when you're depressed yeah I only knew that it was a slow descent descent to depression well, when I came out of it when I started taking my meds again and I right. started fully taking them daily and that I lifted out of that I was like oh wow wow yeah I was really depressed and it seems it's really weird with me actually because it seems um off of my meds and for zero reason whatsoever. Um, I'll get depressed okay. really well. I'll get very anxious and very depressed, and I think that might just be the way my brain's wired these days. Yeah. How many different meds are you on currently? Um, I'm on Amisulprite, 100 milligrams, and um, Citalopram. So just two medications? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. They, they, they really, really do the trick, though. Yeah. So two medications and no booze. Yes. And that's the trick. No booze, no drugs. Yeah. Nothing. Okay. Well, that's awesome. And I'm so glad to hear that you're off the the booze. I mean, obviously not having the delusional thoughts and the paranoia is fantastic too. Personally, uh, I had never dealt with anybody with alcoholism until I had a close friend who just died about a year ago um, oh, wow. because of alcohol. And, and clearly it ran in your family, right? So, I mean, yeah, you got to... Stay away from those British pubs. Holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mum, my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah. And my mum, my mum drinks every night and swears to me that she doesn't have a problem like my dad does. But I'm right. like, and any time I try to mention the amount that she drinks now that I'm clean and understand the effect and and almost the mentality that i had on me when i was younger because obviously my dad drank and my mom drank and it was you know it was normal it was anytime you had a problem you just hit the bottle yeah you know right. <laughs> and that's what that's like the paradigm in my mind that i was grew up with so that's all i knew it was like slightest bit out of order just hit the bottle <laughs> right right and I, and i try to tell my mom this but I, I get screamed at so i've just thought well you know she's my mom yeah, i've yeah, never yeah. changed her so <laughs> right and uh you mentioned how old is your son oh he's nine yeah he's okay nine. so nine-year-old son and you're married yes okay. right a lovely day yeah natalie awesome and and your wife is very supportive of you and and your mental health and all of the work you've done to get better 
Very much. Um, my wife is really the only first... She's the first woman that I'd ever encountered that I felt absolutely 100% comfortable with. I'd never felt that way any other woman before, so I was just like, well, that, this awesome. is nice. I need to I need to hit this up. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, and I think that's the thing they call love there, Raymond. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. That's so, right. Um, so, you know, I know that you're still, you're currently doing work that is, you, you have a website, correct? Yes, I do. Tell um, us about your I, website. Well, the Relationship Blogger. I initially started the Relationship Blogger because the way I healed, I mean really, really healed, was through developing my relationships with other people. And it's funny because people see the Relationship Blogger and think, dating and relationships but it's so much more than that it's it's about self-reflection and bettering yourself through self-reflection and I try and do it in a way that's not preachy I try and do it in a way so I'm telling a story about my life and how I reflected on it to make myself better so the reader goes away and thinks ah wow I might just try this myself Right. So that's how that that's how I go about my work at the moment. And so you're you're blogging, you're writing articles on there, and do you do some yeah. coaching as well? Um, no, not not anymore. I used to, I used to in my last job, I um, I was project manager at a small a medium charity. And what I did is I ran – what I would do is I would go into um, communities and I would start up um, community groups. So a lot of communities, sometimes people just get too high, too focused on the daily grind and they forget to take care of themselves. They forget to talk with other people. They forget to just bob their head up every now and again and see what's happening so what i would do is i would go into essentially communities and start out groups and get people connecting and and get people talking and and just get people doing something with their life and i this is essentially what i was trying to emulate with the relationship blogger yeah it's awesome so how long have you had the website Oh, wow. Um, since 2014. Awesome. Cool. And mm-hmm. how often are you able to, are you posting weekly on the website or how frequently? It's a bit infrequent at the moment Okay. because um, we've just had Christmas and I'm still getting back into the flow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, when we have the two week break off, it takes me a long time to get back into the flow. Um, because I'm, I manage my own time. I work on my own, so it's sometimes it's really hard for me to get back into the flow. Yeah. But, so if people want to check out your site, where do they go? Um, https colon forward slash forward slash the relationship blogger dot com. Awesome. The relationship blogger dot com. I'll make yeah. sure I have that in the show notes as well. Um, yes thank you i've got quite a lot of work on mental health actually yeah that's awesome. a lot of work on there about mental health fantastic and 
so, you know, before we wrap up, Raymond, I'd love to ask you if, if somebody is out there who is really struggling right now in a situation kind of like yours, if they're stuck on the couch, if they're, they're stuck in the home and they're really struggling with depression and or anxiety, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Well, what kind of advice? Well, I would say that, um, you're not the only one that's gone through this, um, Many, many, many people have have went through this and are going through this cur- currently. Um, there are lots of services out there. Essentially, I would say you know just know that understand that you're not alone, and um, for you to go out and just I know it's hard. I know it's hard to actually go out there and and reach for help. I, I think. And reaching for help is the hardest thing to do for anyone. But if you go out there and just say to someone, anyone, that you, you're you looking for some form of help, most people in those services understand how big a deal that that is and how big a step that you've actually made, that they'll be really, you know, that's probably the, the most important thing that you'll do ever in your life. So... I just, you know, uh, <laughs> people are there and people care. Yeah, that's awesome advice. And, you know, it sounds so simple to say, know that you're not alone. Yet when you are in that depressive state, it really does feel like you're the only one who's that low. And and the suggestion of, of making sure you reach out for help, that is actually the, the really courageous and like you said, challenging step to take, but it may be the one that saves your life as well. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Raymond, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic uh, time interviewing you. You have an incredible story. I'm so glad you've been healthy for a long time now. And uh, thank you for your time and make sure you stay healthy. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.